feels as if the, uh, <clears throat> the weather in the last few days has been kind of the coming attractions for the talk that I am planning to give about the difficult emotional energies that play through the mind. For years I was thinking, um, if I ever write a book about Dharma practice, which I haven't yet, but which I think about from time to time, I think to myself, I don't think I have enough to say to write a book, but I have lots of good titles for books. I have a whole list of good titles for the books. And one of my titles that I'm especially fond of is Albuquerque Mind. It sounds like the name of a Louis L'Amour novel, but if you've ever been in Albuquerque, you know that the weather blows through very quickly. And I've taught in Albuquerque several times, and it really is so that you can close your eyes at the beginning of a sitting and have it perfectly beautiful and sunny outside and open your eyes 45 minutes later and it's the middle of a blizzard. And then when you uh, sit down again and close your eyes a little bit later, you get up and the sun is shining and then you open your eyes and it's raining and it, open your eyes and it's windy and then you close something else. It just keeps blowing through, I think because of the spaciousness of the terrain. So I had this great plan. I was going to write a book called Albuquerque Mind and talk about the mind storms that blow through the mind with, with predictable regularity. But then the last couple of days, it's been Barry Mind. I mean, all of a sudden there's a blizzard, and then all of a sudden the sun is shining, and then all of a sudden there's a blizzard, and then all of a sudden the sun is shining. Then there's a rain, and then the sun is shining, and then there's a light snow, and it blows through. That's one view I have of a book I haven't written. This is a cartoon I haven't drawn, but I think about it all the time. I'm going to make a a picture of meditating figures. You can tell a meditating figure, it's always sitting in its blanket, huddled up, right? I'm going to have at least five of those figures sitting huddled in blankets, so undistinguishable, and eyes closed. Everybody's face is going to be just the same. And there's going to be one of those bubbles on top of each one with bubbles coming towards the person so that you know what they're thinking about. And there's going to be five bubbles, okay? And one bubble is going to have rain and thunder and lightning and dark clouds. Another bubble is going to have a Hawaiian scene with swaying palms. Another bubble is going to have a hot fudge sundae or a pizza. Another bubble is going to have powerful sex. I don't know how I'm going to draw that. I need more people and more bubbles because another one is going to be full of expletives. You know how you do on the typewriter when you want to make, make it clear that someone is saying unprintable words. It's going to be full of expletives. And somewhere there's going to be a bubble that has nothing in it at all. Now, the point is that we're not going to think that lucky person that has nothing in their bubble because then there's going to be another picture and another, and all the pictures are going to be the same, all the same people huddled. Just the bubbles will change from one to another because that's really what it is. We get a bubble of this and then it's gone, a bubble of desire, a bubble of anxiety, a bubble of lust, a bubble of sleepiness, a bubble of energy. They're called hindrances in the mind because they presume, presumably, no, not presumably, they actually do, hinder clear seeing or they hinder the possibility of us reconnecting 
with the at-ease, peaceful self that is our essential nature. They confuse us. We think that they are real. And we forget that our actual nature is not that passing storm. The passing storm is the passing storm. Our essence remains our essence all the time. The passing storm is not a problem, except if we believe that it's going to be here forever and it frightens us. Then we get all worried about, how can I stop the weather? What can I do? I can't stop the weather. Life is awful. Because I can't stop the weather, and all the while forgetting, it's weather. It's come, and it'll go. We are fine here when it snows outside. We stay indoors. If we go out, we bundle up. We pretty well know that it's not going to snow forever. But we don't have the same relationship to these difficult mind states. As soon as the difficult mind state blows into the mind, we start to fight with it, either to change it or get rid of it. It's kind of like, I have the the image that it's like uh, stepping into taffy with two feet and then falling over because the feet get stuck in it. But then you've got two feet and two hands in it as well. And then try to get out of the taffy and it gets worse and worse and worse as you try to extricate yourself from the taffy. But really, you can't. You get worse and worse tied up in it and more and more tired. And actually, if we stopped and we thought, hmm, this is taffy. What should I do now? There's probably a wiser way than struggling to get out of it. So that's what I want to talk about, wise ways of dealing with weather in the mind. Everybody here has had innumerable storms since this retreat began, many of them today. So I'd like to present the predictable storms of the mind. It's as if if you move to another planet, somebody might clue you in. Now, these are the kinds of storms we have on this planet. So that if this or that kind of a storm blows in, you know this is this kind of a storm, and it doesn't have to be frightening to you. They're really natural. They're really just alterations of energy in the mind masquerading as solid states. They're kind of mind states wearing stories, like Halloween ghosts. We look at it, we open the door, and there's the child next door dressed in a sheet. And it looks like a ghost, but we really know it's the child next door. It's the same. This is a mind state dressed in a sheet of a story. And it's really helpful to remember there's another way to understand this and another way to work with it other than to let us terrify, let us be terrified by it. So I thought I'd tell you something about the five different kinds of mind states that come to visit in various guises. You could start with a, a kind of a view of what might be the mind um, where the weather is clear where there isn't any particular storm happening. From time to time we have moments like that. Actually, one of the moments like that early in my practice that I noticed, I mean, we have them all the time, but we don't notice them, which I noticed was one of the defining moments of my practice. And it was very special to me. Often we think of religious experiences as being somehow glorious and splendid and Actually, there are often glorious and splendid things that happen in meditative practice, but this particular experience that I had, I learned a great deal from, and it wasn't glorious or splendid. It was totally plain. I was um, sitting up in a retreat center in Santa Rosa, California, 
and that I knew fairly well. It's a pretty plain retreat center, just like this one. And I was practicing for some period of time, and it was one day, almost lunchtime, and I went outside and I sat down on a stone bench outside of the door, kind of waiting for the lunch bell to ring. And right in front of me was a tree. It was kind of a bleak day in a bleak part of the year. It was probably February, so even California was kind of bleak looking. And it was a plain tree, but one of a deciduous tree, so it didn't have leaves on it particularly. And it was even a misty day. It wasn't really raining, but it was misty, so the sun wasn't shining. It was a little cold, and I'm sitting on a stone bench. And I looked at the tree. I probably had a memory of um, reading uh, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, um, in which um, the author describes uh, a mystical experience that she has during the year that she's living at uh, Tinker Creek, where one day she says, I was coming home at the end of the day, and the cypress tree was on fire. And that had so inspired me. It's Annie Dillard so inspired me with her experience. I thought, that's what I want to have. I want to have a cypress tree on fire. And I knew that the cypress tree was not on fire in the sense that it was burning up, but that it was sort of, um, had a luminous quality about it, or iridescence and kind of a mystical vision. So I was waiting to have a cypress tree on fire. But I'm sitting on a stone bench in Santa Rosa on a gray day, and it's cold a little bit. And uh, the fog is coming in, so it's a little bit wet, a little bit moist, not actually raining. And by and by, I hear the lunch bell. I'm just sitting there, sitting. By and by, I hear the lunch bell. And I realized I heard the lunch bell, and nothing happened. Then I realized that what was going on with me was that I was quite content. I didn't need anything. I was sitting on a cold bench on a gray day, a little bit wet in the mist. I opened my eyes. The tree, the tree looked just the same as ever, plain, bare, was not glorious. But the lunch bell had rung, and I hadn't leaped up. I got up pretty soon and went and ate lunch. But I realized that in that moment, I didn't want anything. It was a plain, plain moment, and the mind was at ease. It was just at ease. And I thought to myself, apropos of cypress trees on fire or resplendent moments, that mind at ease is the most glorious mind moment that you could possibly imagine. When a mind storm is visiting you and we are in the grips of that mind storm, you think about it, you think the most glorious thing that could happen to me now would be mind at ease, wouldn't it? Forget about fires and blazes. Actually, they're a little bit overwhelming when they happen. It's a relief when it gets plain. So let's start as a part of our map, the idea that from time to time, more frequently than we know and more frequently than we notice, the mind is actually at ease and plain. Then, because the mind is always filling and emptying and changing with energetic states, different energetic states, totally normal and natural, we're not supposed to live in that way all the time. That's not the nature of the human animal. Totally naturally, and from time to time, the energies in the mind shift. And sometimes they pull and push, and sometimes they wax and wane, and sometimes they slide around. And those five movements are what makes these five difficult mind states, and I'll tell you how. 
They're easy to think about in terms of pairs. It's the first two are a pair, and the second two a pair, and then we'll do something with the last one. And the first two, for me, seem very much a pair of a pushing and a pulling energy. It's kind of the um, obverse energies, the energy of the mind that feels it needs something, mind looking around for something that it needs. And the obverse of it, which we'll do in a minute, is the mind that wants to get rid of something. It's the notion in the mind, I can't be happy unless I have whatever it is that I have. I need something to be happy. Do you ever have that feeling? You get up, you look in the refrigerator, and you stand there with the refrigerator open, and you can't remember why you came there. But something impelled you to go, or you just flick on the TV, see what's there, look through the channels, or you phone up somebody. A couple of years ago, uh, my... uh, Granddaughter, my, 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 when my granddaughter Leah was two years old, her baby brother was born, and um, uh, her other grandmother and I stayed with her on the one overnight that her mother was gone, and we took terrific care of her. I mean, she knows us both well, she loves us both well. We were totally devoted to her well being. Mother was not gone long, but she was gone. And so in the course of the evening, it became clear that Leah, who couldn't really articulate her innermost feelings, nevertheless had feelings and mind states, because she'd say, I need juice. I need a cookie. Now I need that book. I need a puzzle. I need that doll. I need an apple. And her grandmother and I both looked at each other and we realize she needs something. Le falta algo. She's missing something. She's missing something, but she doesn't know what. She has no way of saying, I feel the energy of need and desire, but I don't know what I'm missing exactly. But I just know that I need to have something to feel better. Hers was precipitated by the absence of her mother. Sometimes need comes up in another kind of a funny way. I'd be reading a magazine. Uh, I I like to read Smithsonian, uh, and I belong, so they send me a magazine every month. And I read it in the back of Smithsonian. They have improbable tours to very faraway places. Suddenly, I'm all involved with thinking about maybe I really could go to the Galapagos, or maybe I could take the 17-day voyage to the North Pole and things that are totally improbable and not likely, but they look so good all of a sudden. And five minutes before, I hadn't been thinking of that at all. I didn't miss that in my life, the Galapagos or the North Pole. But suddenly, here's an ad that's so well written that I really would like to do that. Another thing that comes regularly in the mail are catalogs. Every day I get catalogs, which I look in, and as soon as I look, there's something that's so clever that suddenly you feel... I really need that. Or if I don't need it, I need that for John for his birthday. I'll put it away for next Christmas. I'll put it away. Or next something or other. I have to have a present. That all of a sudden, that makes sense because the way the mind works is that in contact with pleasant experience, the mind pulls. That that's, that's when pulling comes up in the mind. Either it's missing something like... Leia is lost contact with pleasant experience, so she needs something, and she doesn't know how to say, I miss my mother. She says, I need all those things. 
You might not even miss a person, but all of a sudden have the idea come up for you. This is a fun thing. Oh, yeah. You ever have the experience of walking by a bakery and a smell comes wafting out? And before that, you weren't hungry. All of a sudden, you're starving. You go by especially a a restaurant with a good smell that comes out. It's in contact with pleasant experience. Desire arises. It's not a naughtiness of the mind. It's just how the mind operates. And it's not, it's not a naughtiness to act on the desire either. I mean, sometimes desires are wholesome, especially sense desires. It would be ridiculous to expect that every time if we got hungry, we said, this is just desire arising. We didn't do anything about it. Now, if we were using food as a way of meeting other desires or incessant craving in the mind that manifests in the body that we don't need, then that might be a cause to really look at how we are working with desire and neediness in our mind. It's amazing how much you think, well, here I am on a retreat, so I'm not reading catalogs and I'm not reading the Smithsonian what could arise that I might desire? It's incredible what you could desire in the middle of a monastery. First of all, I've designed entire wardrobes of better clothing that I might bring the next time I come on retreat <laughs> that would be more comfortable to sit in. Probably if I only had a warmer shawl or a bigger shawl or a higher zafu or a padded bench. Or the range of things that we once get smaller, if they would only serve something other than cereal for breakfast, yeah, my whole day would be made. Now, since the range of possibilities gets smaller, the desires get more narrow. But nevertheless, desire, we're looking for something to make us feel better. I need something. need another cup of tea. I need to take a shower. Something that will make me feel better. Sometimes we need something to make us feel better. Sometimes we actually feel better in our body. Maybe we feel uh, some uh, exciting energy in the body, some amount of rapture in the body, or some excitement in the body from sitting quietly, which is one of the uh, effects of, of really doing contemplative practice. One of the ways in which the Vipassana romance works is that Perhaps you're sitting on your zafu or sitting somewhere, and there's a moment where the body is really feeling quite comfortable, actually quite lively and quite open and quite expressive. And then you open your eyes, and there goes somebody by, and suddenly you're in love with them. It's the most amazing thing. It's kind of like ducks in a shooting gallery that they go by. And just when that duck comes by, because that's when it really works. I have fallen in love with the most improbable people. <laughs> First of all, because I'm a married woman and I have no intention of carrying on with anybody, so the whole thing is futile. And I've fallen in love with people who I knew were otherwise engaged, and so the whole thing was futile. But nevertheless, the mind suddenly hones in on that, decides that this is the relationship of the decade or the eon, <laughs> And that when this and it, it's amazing how it can make a whole story out of there that's so compelling that I'll do this and he'll do that and then I'm back and forth back and forth. It's amazing, and you make it up out of nothing, out of some energies in the body. The energy of lust in the body arises. We open our eyes and say, "Boom! That's what I want," and then we make up all the stories around it. 
the energy, everybody's laughing, you know, because everybody's done it, that's why. <laughs> but it's a wonderful time to see how the mind works. I mean, I'm not, this is not just to entertain you, it's so that you see this is the way the mind works. It takes some energies in the body running around and it says, okay, this is what I want. The opposite or oppositional energy to that energy of uh, lust is the energy of aversion, of anger. In life, I think we get angry sometimes in response really to, or anger arises in response to external events. I think that anger is always the second level of what happens. I think an external event happens about which we feel either frightened or saddened. Those are such demoralizing and debilitating feelings which we would rather not face that what we do that in a moment is feel angry. I'm going to change it so then it won't be that way and I won't feel terrible. And we immediately figure out ways to take charge of the situation. Anger is a much more uh, vital kind of feeling than sadness or fear. As a matter of fact, one of the biggest energies that people get into is a righteous indignation because then you can really have a go at it for a while. It's a very lively energy. You can kind of justify it. I am right and they are wrong and this is the way I would do it. Essentially, it's, it's a disabling kind of an energy because assuming that it is the second level of response to either sadness or fear, it makes much more sense not to ignore the anger or to pretend it isn't there or to rise above it. Sometimes people think that spiritual people don't get angry. Whatever that means, spiritual people shouldn't get angry and that if you get angry, that's a sign that you have not achieved any kind of spirituality. I was at a conference a few years ago and someone asked the Dalai Lama, do you ever get angry? And he said, of course. He said, something happens. You don't like it. It's not what you wanted to have happen. So anger arises. But it was so clear in how he said it that anger arises and it's no big deal. Anger arises and then you do what's the appropriate thing to address that situation and then the anger is gone. It's clearly he doesn't express it in some sort of unskillful or maladaptive or unhelpful way. Anger, the, the sense of anger, is the um, kind of the thermometer, if you will, of, um, of, of the mind in the sense that it says, this has just happened. Just before this moment, something happened that either frightened you or saddened you. Would you like to address that in some way? Which does not mean just letting it happen, especially if something has frightened you or threatened you. doesn't mean just saying, okay, that's happening, I'll have to deal with it because I'm spiritual. Sometimes it means taking a stand, sometimes it means taking a firm stand. We take the firmest and the clearest stand when we're not all confused by the confusing energy of anger. Some people practice anger a lot, uh, because, often because they've come from families where they practiced anger a lot. And it becomes kind of the habitual response of the mind to situations. So one of the things that's really uh, valuable to learn in terms of the response of anger and in terms of the 
uh, responsive lust, or in terms of the three other mind energies that we're going to talk about, is that as soon as we see them as mind energies, they become workable. They become uh, things that we can deal with skillfully. We can see through them, we can understand them, we can recognize them, we can make skillful decisions about them, we can act wisely about them. We are no longer the victims of that. Sometimes you feel victimized by mind states, don't you? Something happens, the mind gets flooded with desire or flooded with rage. And one really feels, in some way, at least I have, like some giant hand has come from somewhere and has taken my mind wherever it is in my body and is shaking it all up. And of course, that's not so. Nothing has happened externally. It's all arising in the sphere of one's own mind. So when we see that, then we're not so victimized by it anymore. Sometimes in our outside life, outside events, external events happen about which we feel frightened or saddened and anger arises. Sometimes anger seems to arise just like that. Sometimes one gets up loaded for bear. It's just some people will say to you, you get up out of the wrong side of the bed this morning. Anybody ever say that to you? Sometimes you get up in a grumpy mood. Who knows why? Chemically, maybe you didn't sleep enough. The hormones in the body didn't have a chance to assimilate themselves enough. It's the phase of the moon. What? Seriously, maybe. Uh, there are different kinds of shifts in our chemistry that account for more or less irritable energy in the mind. It's like the mind is spoiling for a fight. It's looking for something to get annoyed at. And then the first chance it gets, it falls on some external circumstance and it annoys itself about it because it it found something to discharge that energy on. You know that from here, if you've had a totally blissful morning and you come in and the lunch is totally plain, You're not looking at the lunch. You just sit down, you eat it, all blissed out. You've had a disappointing morning and you're in an irritable mood with your practice and you come in and it's the same lunch. The mind does a whole barrage. It's the same old tofu. Can't they think more creatively? It makes a whole story bringing that irritability on the lunch. And it really has nothing to do. The same lunch on another day is ambrosia. That we bring the mind to every situation. The same is true about um, the opposite of the Vipassana romance, the Vipassana vendetta. We kind of fall in hate with people. We fall in love. I I don't like that word. We fall into aversion. We fall into dislike with people. Who knows? We're in the same grumpy mood. Our practice isn't going right. And suddenly, our roommate moves around too loud or bangs the drawer too loud or does something else, snores too loud, or something else. A person in front of you certainly fidgets too much. and All kinds of things are suddenly irritable around one particular person. And then that particular person becomes a repository of all irritability. You decide that that person is somehow someone that you don't like. And then every time you see them coming around a corner, the mind immediately says, oh, there's that person that I don't like. 
and reminds itself of why they walk too loud, they slam too loud, they take too much food, whatever it is, a little pot. And then there's even a little way that the mind can get in, just as in in the romance, the mind can get into telling stories. Mind starts writing notes. Could you please not slam the door so loud? Or, and then you compose the notes over a few times. I was once, I forgot the story. Many, many years ago, I was sitting uh, in Southern California, and it was in the days in which I not only had a, a cushion, but also a uh, bench, lest I not feel comfortable on one, I should be able to switch to the other, and all kinds of other aids to sitting. And so I was sitting, as, as my wont, uh, near the back wall, so I should also have that aid for sitting if I need it. So my bench was right next to me, also against the wall. One day, as I was sitting, quietly, I hear some rustling around me. I open my eyes a little bit. I see a hand reach down, (laughs) take my bench, and go and sit down on it. It's a new person that I haven't seen so far in this retreat. It's a barrage of irritability in the mind, and righteous irritability. She's got my bench. (laughs) Now, it doesn't matter. I'm sitting on a zafu. There's all kinds of zafus. I can go get more zafus. I could go get another bench from the manager, but she's sitting on my bench. I cannot tell you, but I can suggest to you how many hours I spent (laughs) agitated and composing recriminating notes to this person who had taken my bench. Every kind of note, pleasant notes, irritable notes, sarcastic notes... Then I started to get worried. Days went by, and she kept on sitting on my bench. Meantime, I'm sitting, but meantime, I've spent three or four days in a rage about my bench, (laughs) which I clearly don't need because I'm sitting on a sofa. (laughs) Then I start to worry. Then the restless mind, which we're going to talk about in another minute, kicks in. I start thinking, what if she takes my bench home? (laughs) Now... About not taking my bench home at the end of the time. A whole mind storm. I started to not like the way she looked. Everything was the matter with her. I did not like her. And I spent so much energy around that. And then it was getting to be the day before the end of the retreat, so I was worried about the bench. And I came in after lunch on the day before the end of the retreat, and the person was gone, and my bench was back. And that entire storm was nothing. I had spent four days in a storm over the bench. It was the most bizarre thing. But the mind gets on a roll with that, and it uses that energy. And It's amazing. If you do not see it as what's going on, it runs the life. Otherwise, you can be free. You can say, this is really far out. This is really funny. Someday I'll tell a Dharma talk about this. <laughs> Next set of energies. We've done the push-me-pull-you energy. I want it, I don't want it. Okay, now we're going to do the set of energies, which is not enough energy in the mind, too much energy in the mind. It's kind of the gyroscope of the mind that goes this way and it goes this way. Not enough energy, too much energy. Not enough energy, too much energy. Not enough energy is called torpor. 
Actually, it's called sloth and torpor, but sloth being one of the seven deadly sins, I'd like to avoid saying it. Also, it sounds like we're purposely doing it. And it's just what's there. It's just low energy in the mind. Nobody purposely wants to have low energy in the mind. But it manifests either in falling asleep or in kind of foggy haze. You might sit for an hour. Actually, the body might be quite comfortable. But in fact, there's no alertness. You just sit there for a long time, breath in, out, in, out, in, out. There's nothing, there's nothing wise about sitting in a torporous stupor. Even if you sat all day, it wouldn't do any good. It's a very famous line of Ajahn Shah, who was a Thai teacher of many friends of ours, where someone asked him, how long is it good to sit? And he said, it doesn't matter how long you sit. He said, I have seen chickens sitting on their nest for days. They don't get enlightened. <laughs> how long you can sit is not the point, but to sit with some amount of brightness or alertness in the mind, which is not what torpor is. And, you can't, and torpor is just energy goes out of the mind. It just does from time to time. It's not a naughtiness of the mind. It's like if we ran around the block a few times, we get tired. The mind from time to time just runs out of energy. And then if you leave it alone, it picks up again. There are all kinds of things that I'll tell you about that you can do if it's really a big problem for you, like sit up straighter or take deep breaths or do more walking practice, which are kind of structural ways of bringing energy into the system. But if it's not a major, major hindrance for you, it comes and goes. We get tired, often at night, we lie down and sleep. We don't say, oh, I'm running out of energy, I should do something. We understand that the body gets less energy and more energy and less energy and more energy, and we let it do what it needs to do. The same with energy in and out of the mind. Sometimes it's really hard to bring the attention to what's going on. Sometimes people who are doing meta-resolves notice that they're saying, they're resolves, they're saying they're resolves, it's clear, it's clear. All of a sudden they're saying gobbledygook, it has nothing to do with anything. The, the phrases are all mixed up, they're talking gibberish. And it's really because the mind has just run out of energy. It just doesn't have sufficient em- energy to aim itself at what it's doing. It just ran out of steam. The opposite energy to that is too much energy in the mind. Every once in a while for reasons of shifting weather patterns in the body, there's a lot of energy in the mind and the body. Sometimes it manifests as agitation in the body where suddenly you might feel, if I sit here one more minute, I'm going to explode. Anybody ever felt that feeling? (laughs) If I sit here one more minute, and you really feel like your body's going to explode. It's going... It's kind of like a motor running. It's really agitation in the body. I feel sometimes, I used, to, I used to describe it to my teachers, I'd say, you know how it is when a motor is idling? It's just like running all the time, but it can't relax because it's got all that agitation. Agitation in the body is not comfortable. Agitation in the mind is not comfortable either. For one thing, it means the attention can't land on something. It lands here and bounces there and bounces there and bounces there. So there's no focus, there's no sustaining interest. You can't really stay with any kind of an object, not with the breath, not with body sensations, because the mind's all over the place. One of the things that uh, agitation, agitated, restless mind often produces, which I know a lot about, because this is the hindrance that's the most difficult for me, is it produces worries. 
produces fretting mind. Um, everybody manifests all five energies. Everybody I know is able to choose, although choose is maybe the wrong word, isolate or um, recognize is a better word, recognize which of those energies is their most troublesome energy. My most troublesome energy is restlessness. Restlessness of the body, not so much, but restlessness of mind. It's not mind looking for a fight, uh, like aversive mind, or mind looking for sensual pleasure, like lust mind. It's mind looking for a worry. It kind of prowls around the... Uh, scans the environment for what to worry about next. People who have this as a uh, major hindrance, as a significant hindrance, recognize it in life because they know that they they fret more than other people fret and that they worry about something. And worrying is so debilitating. They worry, 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 worry. And then that worry, whatever it is, is met. So they can say, phew, now I don't have to worry anymore. Whatever that crisis is, so-and-so kept his job, got into graduate school, survived their operation, whatever it is that you were worried about, didn't come to pass, and you say, okay, phew, now I'm not worried, or came home. I don't have to worry anymore, phew. And I'll never worry again, as long as I live. And then very shortly thereafter, minutes maybe later, the mind starts prowling around, scanning the horizon like a sonar or radar, looking for something on the horizon that it might possibly worry about it. Oh, there's another worry, okay? It essentially usually takes neutral data and worries about it. I know this very well because I'm I'm actually a veteran of this. I'm a, a connoisseur of fretting minds. I teach workshops at Spirit Rock often for uh, habitual fretters. And I have good credentials for that because I've done a lot of years. Actually, as a result of this practice, I'm a recovering habitual fretter. (laughs) Remarkably recovered, as a matter of fact. I get caught, but compared to where I've come from, and it's really the practice. What happens to me now is not that I don't have fretful thoughts. Actually, given the same neutral data that other people do not spin into a catastrophic conclusion, I actually immediately spin it into a catastrophic conclusion. The difference between now and before is not that I don't do that. The mind does it. That's just the way it does. The difference between now and then is that for the most part, I don't believe it. And for the most part the whole adrenaline system that kicks in when we believe the fretful thoughts doesn't happen. So the whole sequelae of the worry escalating and escalating and taking steps and phoning up and you are right, you are right, doesn't happen. Rarely happens, rarely. It's funny though, you know, after a while it gets to be amusing if I'm on a street corner somewhere in, a, in some mysterious country, maybe. And I uh, have an agreement with my husband that we'll meet at 5 o'clock at this particular street corner. And I've come there, and it's one minute to 5, and he's not there. He's not even late yet. It's one minute to 5. It's not even late. I might have the thought, suppose he's not here in one minute. Well, if he's not here in one minute, then I have a thought, well, he's surely been mugged. 
he's gone. That's it. Where's the American embassy? Do I have my passport? What happens now, which didn't happen before, is pretty soon, I think, what if, what if he's not here in a minute? I think he'll probably be here in a minute. If he's not here in a minute, I'll wait more. If he's not here after that, he's probably looking in some shop window somewhere. He'll probably be here. This is my habitual mind making that story. It's just a story that it runs. I have a feeling about it. Actually, I'm quite friendly with that story. That's the whole variety of stories, but it's always catastrophic outcome from neutral data. And I have kind of an affectionate feeling about the stories. I don't like them. If I could have a storyzectomy, I would take that out of the machine. <laughs> if I could delete it from my computer, I would take it out. I don't enjoy it. But since it's there, I treat it as if they were unpleasant neighbors who moved in and played bad tapes in the middle of the night. (laughs) If I were obliged to live in that apartment and I could not move to another apartment, I would be obliged to put up with these bad tapes in the middle of the night. But I would have two choices. I could either relax and say, those are my neighbors playing the bad tapes. When I get enough money, I'll move. Or I could sit and fume and call the landlord and send letters to the Tenants Association or get myself worse frenzied about it. There's, there's a way to live with what you've got in a way that's somewhat more spacious, but you have to recognize what's going on. So those are two energies. The fifth energy is, the, in a certain way, the most tricky of all of them to recognize because all of those other energies have a body energy component. You know when you have lust. And you know when you have anger, the body feels a certain way. None of them feel good. Actually, you think, well, lust has that kind of titillating feeling. But actually, unmet lust doesn't feel any better than anger. It's just a really jangling energy in the body. So you feel lust, you feel anger, you feel torpor, you feel agitation and restlessness. The fifth one is doubt. And you don't feel doubt so much. You think doubt. Doubt is called slippery energy in the texts. It's as if lust is pulling energy and aversion is pushing energy and torpor is little energy and agitation is high energy. And doubt is like slippery energy. Nothing sticks. It's like you can't quite get it together in a certain way to believe something and believe it. It often comes up in thoughts, self-doubt. I'll never be able to do this. See that? I'll never be able to do it. I'll never get it. Other people are getting it, not me. Or path doubt. This is the wrong path. It looks like a good path for all these other people. But for me, no, I should have taken up some other kind of contemplative path. And what's more, it's the wrong time. I should have come in the summer when it's warm. It's too cold now. I never think well in the winter. It's the wrong time to be a... And also, it's the wrong teachers. They don't have a noble enough lineage. Or I should have been with that other teacher that my friend was with. That was really a really... That was really a teacher. There are all kinds of ways that we can tell ourselves doubtful stories and undermine us. I shouldn't be here now. What's going on in my life at home is really what requires me to be there. People have a hit of that. And all of a sudden it becomes a compelling reason to leave. You have to say, well, maybe. You know, sometimes there really are compelling reasons to leave. Sometimes I encourage people to leave. It seems like the appropriate and the thoughtful and the wise thing to do. But after some amount of reflection, I doubt I should be here, I should be there. Think a little bit, think. You might think, and you might discover you're right. 
you might discover it's just the energy of doubt. I shouldn't be here now. I can't do it. So, those are all the energies. Sometimes people talk about uh, mm, multiple hindrance attacks, as if they're rare. Actually, every hindrance attack is a multiple hindrance attack. Every single one is a multiple hindrance attack. Suppose you fall in love with somebody. You're thinking about them all the time. First couple of hours of thinking about them, it's pleasant. Then after a while, you think, I came here to meditate. came here to have a tranquil mind. I don't want to think this. I'd like to get rid of this lust. So now we have a version in the mind trying to push away those thoughts. But they don't go away. So then we think, see, I'm never going to make it as a yogi. Here comes the doubt. I can't do it. I'm overwhelmed with this lust. It's the only thing I'm thinking about. Now I'm so agitated because I have so much lust. And I have so much aversion also and so much doubt. I'm totally agitated. And by and by, we're exhausted. So then we have torpor. There's no way... It's a, no, no matter which end of the bag of the hindrances we start, they are all attached to each other. Whichever, you reach into the hindrance bag, you pull out one, you find that it's trailing the other four, always. And you can watch it. I was sitting in the back of this room, in the second Zafu to the back, right near the wall, which was my seat, many years ago on Halloween. It was a beautiful day. Um, it was a gorgeous evening to walk in here because the staff had made these absolutely spectacular jack-o'-lanterns all around the room, all lit. I was in a wonderful mind state. I'd been practicing. I was really full of delight in the practice and in love with the practice and full of confidence about myself. Things were so clear. I was in a great shape. And the staff had put uh, candy on everybody's afu. And I came in, I thought, isn't that wonderful? I love the whole staff of putting the candy on everybody's zafu. And I got to my zafu, and I looked down, and I had grape bubble gum. And I don't like that. (laughs) And I had a moment of of aversion. I didn't want the grape bubble gum. I looked around, other people had better stuff. And I wanted what they had. So I had a moment of aversion, I had a moment of desire, but I would never have taken what was on somebody else's zafu. Then I had another moment of desire. Since I didn't want my great bubblegum, in front of me was the zafu of my friend Roger, still out walking somewhere. Since I didn't want the bubblegum, so it wasn't such a generous act, but I thought to myself, I feel like giving Roger this bubblegum. <laughs> because I wouldn't take whatever he had, but... I th- then Roger will come in and he'll feel very happy because he'll have two candies. So I'll turn around my negativity to something good. I'll give Roger my candy. So I put my candy on Roger's zafu. And here comes Roger. Immediately that I've done that, it occurs to me, that was a dumb thing to do. How could you have put your candy on Roger's zafu? Now Roger will find two candies. He'll know someone gave him one. He'll think someone is in love with him. It'll stir up his whole mind. <laughs> That was a, you're not supposed to send any notes. You're probably not supposed to send bubblegum. That was a bad yogi thing to do. By this time, I was totally agitated, full of doubt, and exhausted from the whole thing. And the whole thing had taken about 30 seconds. And at least I started to laugh about it. It was so clear in that moment. I said to myself, 
you've just had a giant multiple hindrance attack. <laughs> but the reason I tell you that story is I had come in in such a lovely place, confident, really understand this practice. Now I see what I'm doing. I feel wonderful. It's like a feather, the mind. One wind, one blow. And it's capitulated. It's like Albuquerque mind, Barry mind. Stuff blows in and blows out. So there are antidotes to the hindrances. I'll tell you them very quickly because the biggest antidote to the hindrances is knowing them and seeing through them. They're just mind storms. In the short run, they're a kind of um, helpful uh, kind of first aid antidotes if you're having a major kind of storm that's very unpleasant for you. You can do certain kinds of immediate first aid. One, the, the first aid for um, wanting the lustful thoughts is restraint. It's tricky. It's hard to restrain thoughts, but you can do it. We'll do an easy one first. You know, as you're doing walking practice, walking along, walking along, walking along, all of a sudden you have the thought, I wonder what time it is. So you look at your watch. That actually is a moment of boredom, followed by a moment of desire to know when you're going to get to go sit again or eat or something, followed by the intention to meet that desire and you do it. You say, okay, ten more minutes, and you walk. If you can be uh, alert to that, it's like a minor thing, but it's an energy leak. Walking along, thought comes up, wonder what time it is. What does it matter what time it is? When the bell rings, that'll be time to sit or eat. See if you can catch that moment that says, look at your watch, and don't do it. It's a minor thing. I mean, lightning doesn't strike if you look at your watch. But there are ways of noticing that the mind's about to act on a desire that's not germane to what you're doing and not doing it. It's tiny little things like that that really teach the mind, I'm serious, do what we're doing. At some point I took a vow about watching for that note, that idea in the mind, see what time it is. Also, watch that impulse in the mind on the way to walking that says, have a cup of tea. You're on the way to walking. You didn't need the tea before you saw the tea machine and somebody else having the tea. All of a sudden, tea would be very good. It would energize the walk. I like to think of the walking of the practice periods as being, first of all, all day. But if we have to think of them as shorter, the practice period is from 8.15 until noon and from 2 to 5.15. And really what we do during those periods is three or three and a half hours of paying scrupulous attention moment to moment of everything that it's arising. And one of the ways to shore up the energy so you can do it is not have energy leaks in all kinds of ways. It's a little bit harder to take a vow on the chronic thinking, especially around lusts, fantasies about who here or who there or that we might start up with that would be sensually rewarding. You can, however, notice it as it starts instead of a half hour down the road and say, I won't do that. I already did that three times today. I won't do it now. You know, we would not go to a movie, no matter how good, and sit through it ten times. We sit through it once. Maybe it's a great movie you go the second time. But we, we play those lustful fantasies over and over and over again. 
Maybe you actually have fallen in love with the person you would spend the whole rest of your life with. You cannot figure that out until the end of the retreat. So there's no point to think about it further. Say, okay, here's that thought, but I already had that thought. I'll check it out at the end of the retreat. Now I'm coming back to my experience. There is such a thing as taking a vow on stories. At one point in my own practice, I was walking along. After many years of practice, maybe it would be rewarding for you to know that well, maybe five years into my practice, I was delighted with Dharma. I loved to go on retreats. I liked hanging out and listening to the teachings, but nothing was happening with any amount of mind malleability. I was walking along one day, and I passed um, one of my teachers walking with somebody else. I don't know the whole conversation, but somebody else said something or other. And my teacher, in response, and I did hear it, said, well, you know, actually really nothing is worth thinking about. And that was revolutionary to me. I'd spent my whole life thinking about everything. And I took a vow on stories. I'd been sitting on my Zafo for five years, rewriting my life and thinking about my life and writing lesson plans. And I just stopped. I said, I'm not doing that anymore. I didn't come here to do that. I can do that in the rest of my life. It was not relaxed practice. Normally we give the, the instructions, be relaxed, wait for the breath to present itself. Those are really proper instructions. I'm only telling you this piece of my personal history in case it's helpful for you. I don't practice that way now. I didn't practice that way for years. I practiced that way for a couple of days, and my life changed as a result of it. I sat down and I said, my attention is not wandering from the breath. I am so tired of these stories. Now, actually, thoughts don't stop because cognitions are thoughts. This is a long breath. This is a thought, short breath. My breath is not, my attention is not wandering from my breath. Those are all thoughts. Those are cognitions. They're awarenesses. I took a vow on stories. I'm not telling myself another story. You can renounce stories. It's possible. And then what happens here is that everything that's happening gets so interesting, it's way more interesting than the stories. So that's restraint. If you're overwhelmed with aversion, mostly it's hard to, to get away from it. It's very hard to say. People often say, why don't you do love and kindness for the aversion? If you could, you wouldn't have so much aversion. You know, that it's very hard to start, start from an, a tense place when we're angry and having aversive feelings and start offering loving kindness to the other person. You can offer it to yourself, though. Because it's so unpleasant to be sitting with aversion. It's not peaceful. Say, may I be peaceful, may I be happy. And may I not think the story of why I don't like this person. Because the the aversion gets fueled by the stories. It's another place to take a vow on stories. For torpor, if you're still falling asleep after three or four days, then we'll find ways for you not only to sit up straighter and breathe deeply, but maybe go for a long walking period. Sometimes walk for an hour and a half. Instead of sitting and walking, walk for an hour and a half. But really decide when you start that you're not going to walk for 50 minutes or 55 minutes. That you're taking a vow when you start. I am now walking for an hour and a half through a walking period and a sitting period. Sooner or later, the mind really comes home. Says, Well, the mind comes home. The attention really, the mind is always home. The attention wakes up and gets to be here. Says, here I am. Okay, I see you mean business. I'll pay attention. You can wake up a torpor. From restlessness, 
from not getting frantic about it, from breathing deeply, say, breathing in, I calm my body, breathing out, I smile. You do some metta for yourself. It's an unpleasant body state. feels better. Doubt, the best way to work with doubt immediately, for me anyway, is I look around at other people. I, I kind of take refuge in the sangha. So all these people are doing it. They have tremendous faith in it. I'll use their faith for a while. Or I look at my teachers. And I know they're plain people just like me. And I felt a lot of faith in the fact that it was possible to be just a plain person, not some exalted person, and somehow learn to live this life with more grace. So that gave me a lot of faith. Which is really one of the antidotes for doubt. In the long run, all of the mind states take care of themselves. You don't have to think, what is the antidote? Do I have lust or do I have aversion? What should I do? You know, that would be kind of having like a kit bag of specific liniments or ointments for different kinds of ailments. Actually, what's better than all of them is just concentrating, coming back to either metta or coming back to the breath. In the concentrated mind are the natural um, dissolving energies or um, the natural response energies to all those uh, aversive, difficult energies of the mind. In the concentrated mind, there's a fair amount of aim and precision in seeing, which wakes up torpor all by itself. The concentrated mind has the ability to sustain attention over a period of time, which really is the antidote to doubt. I can so do this. The concentrated mind has an element of rapture in it, and rapture is the antidote to anger or rancor. Anger cannot live in a rapturous mind and body. Concentrated mind has calm in it, which is the antidote to restlessness. And it has one-pointedness, which is the antidote to desire. There's an ability to be one-pointed, say, I'll just be with that, instead of looking around for millions of objects. All by itself in a concentrated mind. So you don't have to think, what should I do? Which hindrance do I have? What application of what antidote? Say, I'll just take a breath. I'll just take a walk. I'll just bring myself back to here in the most plain way. And the mind takes care of itself. Let's sit for a minute. This talk was given by Sylvia Burstein at Spirit Rock Meditation Center on February 13, 1994. It is an offering of the Dharma Seed Audio Archive. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.